3: It's Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. Chugging toward Christmas on the Guy Benson show. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. I'm Guy Benson, your host, Fox News contributor, townhall.com political editor and program host here on this fine show every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. We are grateful. We are honored that you're joining us, preferably live as we air. Between those hours, 3 to 6 Eastern, or on the podcast, which is on demand and free every single day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need to know is right there. GuyBensonShow.com. On today's program, here's our lineup. Josh Rogan, Washington Post columnist, foreign policy reporter. He's going to be here talking about all things China. He's got a book on China. He's really an observant analyst, and he has lots of trenchant points that he makes regularly at the Post and on his Twitter feed. I'm looking forward to introducing him to you and this audience today. Later on, Congressman Tony Gonzalez will join us, Republican from Texas. The border crisis is out of the headlines, but it is still raging. We will talk to him, plus he's introduced new legislation related to Border Patrol. We'll ask him about that. And coming up in our final hour, we will check in with Chad Pergram, our man on Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent. A big day over there, just blocks from where I sit, and some rumors of some big, big developments that I'm going to get to here in just a moment as we kick off the show. Could the Biden agenda be dead in Congress or at least significantly hamstrung or stalled? It appears, likelier than ever, that the answer is yes. Details coming up. First, a Fox News alert and some stats. COVID cases in the U.S., uh, 50.2 million, all in. The real number is much higher than that. Those are the official case count stats. The death toll, people in America who have died with or of COVID in these last 20 months over the course of the pandemic, 798,945. Dow is currently up 163 points, trading at 35,704. We'll bring you that update, as we always do, at the top of the next hour after the markets close up in New York. Well, President Biden last night went to a political dinner fundraiser event, and he had a lot of things to say, talking a big game, saying that Democrats are going to win next year in the midterm elections which I think very few people believe, but generally partisans have to say it, especially at events like this. At one point, he was really uh, feeling himself and decided to make a kind of a a threat, a little chest-thumping statement to the Republican Party. Problem is he kind of butchered it. I know that doesn't sound like him, does it? Cut five. Here he was trying to talk tough.
4: Now we look at 2022. I want to tell my Republican friends, get ready, pal. You're going in for a problem. And we need to stay unified.
3: Yet he got like two woos. Because everyone's like, wait, what did he just say? Yeah, get ready, pal. You're going in problems. Yeah, I'm sure the Republicans are terrified of that. So what should worry Democrats today That sort of uh, verbal misfire notwithstanding, that's sort of typical for Biden. I did see actually, relatedly, a big Twitter thread today from the RNC demonstrating just how not accessible this president has been to the press on press conferences, on -on one-on-one interviews. One of the stats that jumped out at me because Obama and Trump and recent presidents had given many more interviews at this stage of their presidency than Biden I think that that's probably a a strategic decision by the White House. I think we can probably perhaps connect some dots there on why they don't want him out there being grilled on a regular basis by journalists. But at this point in his vice presidency, he had done more interviews as vice president than he has as president of the United States. The first lady has done more interviews than her husband, the president of the United States at this stage. So that's just something to keep in mind. I would love to see some of the questions that might be asked and how he would respond to reports emerging today about the potential collapse of the Build Back Better reconciliation spending binge that we have been fighting hard against on this show. Because you had the bipartisan infrastructure framework that passed. Right. It passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. Then it sat in the House for a long time. And I'm going to remind you some of the context there here in a second. Finally, Pelosi was able to get the vote she needed and send the bill over to Biden for his signature. Then all the attention turned to this massive monstrosity of a human infrastructure or soft. whatever You know, they had all these different euphemisms for it. It was just a truly gargantuan expansion of government fueled by a bunch of tax increases, although there was also a big tax break for millionaires in it, right? Huge tax break for blue state millionaires and rich people, tax increases for tens of millions of middle class people, which is going to be a huge violation of Biden's campaign promise that he said over and over again. It's not true. And they actually passed it out of the House not long ago. We covered that. Then it flipped over to the Senate, and it has been languishing in the Senate because you have a few more moderate Democratic senators who just aren't on board for what that bill entails. And one of the things, one of the objections that we've covered very carefully, and we talked about it, in fact, yesterday at some length, is the true cost of this bill, which is, according to nonpartisan experts, closer to $5 trillion in new spending – versus the 1.75 or whatever they claim and the democrats we maybe kind of got into the weeds a bit on the cbo and the white house saying oh it's a fake score what they just put out we had the former cbo director on saying no it's not fake at all what the republicans asked the cbo to do was to just run the numbers run the math if the democrats as they insisted wanted to be the case if the democrats were going to Introduce these new programs and fund them permanently, which is a 10-year budget window. What would that cost? Because we know the tax increases that they had proposed, including on the middle class, total shattered promise. What they did was they made the spending artificially low by limiting various programs to just a few years. So you got a year here. You got three years on this one. But they said, and we played you the montage on this show yesterday, Democrat after Democrat, including leadership, saying, oh, yes, we intend to make these things permanent. So they were gaming the system to try to get a CBO score that made the top line price tag look low. And it was all just phony and bogus. So the Republicans said, no, let's do the real count, what it would all cost for 10 years based on what they're saying they want to do. And that gave you and us. And the taxpayer a three trillion dollar hole. Three trillion dollars over ten years. That was the budget shortfall of unpaid for spending that the Democrats wanted to pass. After saying over and over again, risibly, preposterous, uh, preposterously, that it costed zero dollars or would cost zero dollars, right? Fully paid for was their claim, their promise. And there is a very. Huge canyon between $0 and $3 trillion, obviously. And Joe Manchin from West Virginia kept saying, I don't like these budget gimmicks. I don't like having this mismatch of temporary programs that aren't really going to be temporary. Let's see what this thing really costs. And it sounds like whatever he was discussing with the White House has kind of fallen apart. Because the rumors over on Capitol Hill, and I've seen some of our correspondents Writing about this, other networks also reporting that it appears that leadership in the Senate has decided that they are going to shelve indefinitely Build Back Better. They just can't come to an agreement. They are too far apart. Mansion and probably cinema and the rest of them. The rest of them are just chomping at the bit to spend oodles of money, just crazy amounts of money with no way to pay for it, except for future, even higher middle class and working class tax increases. They don't want to talk about that. They just want to put these programs into existence knowing that it'll be virtually impossible to get rid of them. That is the goal of statists. But a handful of them were not on board. And after all of the delays and everything, and the negotiations and the shuttle diplomacy back and forth of the White House, this highly anticipated phone call, oh are we going to convince cinema to do something by showing up at a wedding and harassing guests that she's in attendance at this wedding. Maybe we can chase her into a bathroom again with cameras, see if that works. All of that played out, and they could not reach a final agreement. And therefore, again, the preliminary report is that they are going to punt this thing indefinitely sometime into next year. Now, look, is it possible that inflation will improve in the coming six months or something? And there's less pain out there caused by raising prices, and they can quietly work with Manchin in the White House and hammer out something that he can actually stomach. And then they come out, you know, in the spring of 22 or something and say, all right, now we do have a deal. We're going to do this after all. Maybe. It is possible. However, I would say usually to get big things done, you want to do it not in the election year. When it's already expected to be a pretty brutal year for Democrats at the ballot box next November to shove this thing into 22, a lot of people, at least the conventional wisdom is that may not be a final nail in the coffin or a death knell, but it's getting a lot closer. Chuck Schumer kept saying Christmas, we're going to do it by Christmas. Well, we're 10 days out from Christmas and it's definitely not going to happen by Christmas, a prediction that I had made on the air and not by the end of the year. And the further it goes into 22 and closer and closer to election, the less likely it becomes at all. And I think, again, without getting too triumphal about it, I think that's great news. I'm not going to have a full-blown celebration because you never know when this thing might rear its ugly head again. But for now, it looks like it's on life support and they're basically admitting it because now they're saying we're going to prioritize voting rights instead. And they've got this federal government takeover of elections that they're going to push and they're going to try to rile up their base saying, oh, yes, election election rights and uh, voting rights. And this is what we're going to do. And the the Republicans are the ones blocking it. So they get to call everyone racist. It's their favorite thing. So it's a big new squirrel for the base that's going to be furious that Build Back Better has gone away. Well, this will give them something to be mad about. And rather than the story being Democratic dysfunction will be look at these rotten republicans and the filibuster which is a racist institution right in a relic of jim crow that by the way we used repeatedly when we were in the minority for the last seven years or whatever it was we exclusively used filibuster now it's transformed again into a racist tool and everyone who's against this stuff is racist this is what they love to do it's working so well for them isn't it calling everyone a racist worked great in 2016 hell worked great in 2020 when they actually lost seats in the house just got their rear ends handed to them in Virginia, lost ground in New Jersey. Maybe just a little bit more screaming about racism louder. Maybe that'll get it done. But that's their next thing that they're going to move on to, supposedly, and they're going to have to kill the filibuster to actually get their bill passed. Multiple Democrats have said they're not going to kill the filibuster, so it's likely that they're going to just... Turn the page to something that Kamala Harris is in charge of, right? This is part of her portfolio that has very little chance also of becoming law. They just feel like maybe it's better politics for them at getting their people all fired up and distracting from their failure on Build Back Better. That's my theory of the case. Two more observations on this. If, in fact, Build Back Better is wheezing or dead. And again, the further into 22 it gets, the closer to dead it gets. And the fact that it has been punted, I think, is a big deal. If, in fact, Build Back Better is dead, imagine being one of the House Democrats who walked the plank for Nancy Pelosi just a few weeks ago. She got every single one of them except for one, the guy from Maine. She got every single one of them to walk the plank and vote yes on a bill. That gives tax breaks to millionaires in blue states and raises taxes on a lot of middle-class people. They all voted for it. They all lined up and voted for it. And then it's just going to what? Fall off a cliff in the Senate and go nowhere? You get nothing to show for it. But now you have those votes on the record of what you have voted to support. You might say, well, Guy, the American people may not know about that because you know the, the media – I think the Republicans, it's going to be on them to highlight those votes relentlessly, ruthlessly in ads and in debates. And to force them to defend that vote, which got them nothing, but they showed on the record a willingness to raise middle class taxes while giving a tax cut to millionaires. That's what they all voted for except for one guy in the House, for Pelosi. And what do they end up with? Nothing? Empty handed? That's what it's looking like if BBB goes down as it appears it's at least been punted, increasing the chances of it going down altogether. Good move, House Democrats. Another strategic coup by master legislator Nancy Pelosi. And the second point that I'll make briefly is, if you are one of those House progressives, because you're a moderate, if you're one of the so-called moderates, you all voted for this stuff. So you're probably privately seething. Why the hell did I do that? What was the point of that? The progressives, meanwhile, the lefties, they held... The infrastructure bill hostage for months because they were afraid of what? Of the bipartisan infrastructure bill getting a vote and passing and becoming a law, making the moderates happy, and then build back better. Their big dream of massive spending, huge government expansion, that not going anywhere because moderates in the Senate would kill it. That was their whole concern why they played the whole game the way they did. And now what has happened? precisely what their fear was has happened. So they're going to be mad. So, look, we'll see where this goes. It's not over, but it's got to be a tough, tough day for Democrats in leadership, so-called moderate Democrats who've been hung out to dry and the progressives who are absolutely going to feel totally betrayed. Are we allowed to say Dems in disarray? Because that's how it feels on the Guy Benson show. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more note on the Build Back Better potential demise that we were just covering. There's some concern. Will the Republicans actually force the Democrats, the vulnerable Democrats in the House who voted for this giant mess, to own that and tie that around their necks ahead of the election? Well, I had tweeted some of these thoughts about walking the plank for Pelosi, having nothing to show for it, and all these unpopular provisions. The NRCC, which is in charge of winning these races, retweeted me. So I think Republicans are prepared to make that case and to make sure voters don't forget what these Democrats supported on the record. And then speaking of squirrels, distraction squirrels for the left-wing base, it's going to be mad. I see Elizabeth Warren the phony native american senator from massachusetts she has now come out in favor of packing the supreme court she's going to co-sponsor legislation to pack the court which even biden's group his commission he put together they did not support that didn't even come close to supporting that but she's in favor of it four new seats she wants to add to the u.s supreme court republicans or conservatives i should say have a six three majority on the court right now i'm sure she just picked that number of four seats just out of thin air it's so transparent. She's a reason why Republicans need to win next year, too.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. podcast always free. And I'm very happy to welcome for the first time to the program Josh Rogan, who's a columnist at The Washington Post. He's author of the book Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle of the 21st century you can follow him as i do on twitter at josh rogan josh good of you to join us thanks so much
5: hey guy huge fan thanks for having me on
3: i appreciate that i want to ask you about all things china because we cover china a lot on this show you really understand these issues on a granular level let's start with the olympics coming up in just a few weeks time the biden administration has announced and a lot of our western sort of anglosphere allies have uh jumped on board as well a diplomatic boycott of the olympics what exactly does that mean i know that the chinese regime has reacted negatively with some bluster uh, but it seems like that has maybe some bite on prestige but certainly less damage than you know pulling out of the olympics or really going after sponsors and that sort of thing what's your read on the olympics and how the chinese government is viewing the partial diplomatic boycott
5: Sure. Well, inside the Biden administration, there was actually very little debate over what to do about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, There was nobody really who argued that President Biden should show up in Beijing and stand next to Xi Jinping uh, and allow himself to be used in what essentially would be a photo op uh, to whitewash the fact that these Olympics are happening in a country uh, where genocide is ongoing, where Xi Jinping, as we now know from uh, more and more revealed uh, internal documents, uh, a genocide that Xi Jinping personally ordered and personally organized and personally oversees. And, you know, so this, the, there was never a sort of like a, oh, well, maybe we should go, maybe we shouldn't go. Uh, at the same time, uh, nobody inside the Biden administration wanted to hurt the athletes. They didn't think. Uh, and by the way, Mitt Romney and uh, Nancy Pelosi and people like that agree with this view uh, that if the athletes want to go, they should go. And that the 1980 diplomatic boycott of the Soviet Union led by Jimmy Carter turned out to be more of a propaganda win for the Soviets in that view. It's not necessarily the view to, that I share. But anyway, that was the thinking. It's a half measure. It's a compromise. Uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks strategy, I like to call it. Not too hot, not too cold. They're trying to get it just right. It doesn't really do much for the Uyghurs, but it did give them a huge sort of shot in the arm. Uh, In terms of just moral support, uh, it's definitely, I mean, the the reasons to criticize the boycott are pretty clear. You know, they make sense. They're like, oh, well, it's not going to move the needle on the genocide. Sure, it's not going to move the needle on the genocide, but it's better than nothing. And, you know, I think we sort of make this mistake, uh, two mistakes when we talk about this. And because uh, the Olympics is really the last chance, the last time that I think the Chinese Communist Party will really give a crap one way or the other about what we say about it. Uh, uh, for a long time to come because, you know, to link it to the broader picture just for a second before I hand it over to you, what we're experiencing is a downturn in not U.S.-China relations, not a Cold War between the United States and China, but an increasing resistance to China's problematic behavior and actions as it rises. In other words, it's not about Donald Trump versus Xi Jinping. It's not about Washington versus Beijing. It's about the entire world coming to terms with the fact that the CCP uh, has changed and that China is headed in a different direction and that 40 years of engagement have largely failed. And now we have to have a new strategic approach in conjunction with all of the other countries in the free yeah. and open world. So that's, that's a long that's, way of saying... yeah. You know,
3: I was going to say part of my concern – and this is not an original thought to me, but when I see people express it, it's I think depressingly accurate, at least from my perspective, that the whole idea of openness with China and engagement was that we would wear them down over time and increase our leverage and bend them more towards our values when it appears indeed in reality the opposite has happened. And you see American and and Western governments, um, institutions, companies – celebrities knuckling under left and right because of the money that's at stake there and sort of just abandoning or just pausing Western or American values. And I want to specifically ask you because you could say, all right, half measure on the Olympics. I think there's arguments on both sides of that. Tell us about sort of the games being played right now around these sanctions against companies that use labor in Xinjiang and slave labor, because There appears to be basically unanimous support for these measures in Congress, and yet we're not seeing the same bill pass in both houses to get to the president's desk. And there are reports including from you and your reporting that the administration – there are elements within the administration who want to slow walk this. They want to water it down. They don't want this Uyghur slave labor bill to actually pass. Which is why you're seeing some of the attacks, for example, against Senator Rubio, who's trying to actually make this thing happen. What are the dynamics there?
5: Yeah, this is a really crazy part of the story because it links back to what we're just talking about. Because, uh, you know, if the diplomatic boycott is not going to solve the genocide, well, it begs the question, well, okay, well, what are we going to do next? and it means not depending on the Olympics as the, the last chance to stop the genocide because the genocide has to be stopped one way or the other. So the thing that Congress came up with was a ban on the products of that genocide because part of the systematic atrocities after you get out of the concentration camps is that you get sent to sew together Nikes or pick cotton for the rest of your life and you don't really have a choice about it. That's why it's called forced labor. And those products are coming into our country through our own companies. So the bill that Rubio came up with and McGovern came up with on the other side a little bit differently was, okay, let's not do that let's have a presumption that all of these uh, products coming from the region where the genocide is happening are tainted with forced labor and then not accept them and it raises the cost of the genocide for the perpetrators of the genocide and from years i mean especially in the last six months but really for about two years uh the uh both administrations actually resisted this and In the end, uh, the Biden administration told – this is what I reported, what you're referring to – they told the Democrats that they wanted to water it down and slow it down. And when I exposed that, then they sort of switched tactics. And then, magically, something crazy happened in Washington – yesterday uh which is that mcgovern and rubio came together and agreed on a text and passed it out of the house and that was a rare moment of bipartisanship and a, a glimmer of hope for the uyghurs who are suffering and then today my latest hearing and I'm breaking this news on your show right now guy is that the senate it stalled up in the senate that they were expected to just have it go through and now some democrats want to add other crap to it whatever it is you know the other Why? thing that they care about Uh, Because they see that this thing has momentum, and that's what happens in the Senate. When something's moving, everyone tries to stab it until it's dies with all of their flags and all of their crap and this is what's you know and and so you know for the uh, like exactly 24 hours you had this sort of moment where like oh we're going to pass this bill even the White House was pressured into saying that they would sign it because in the end when exposed when these things are kind of brought to light nobody wants to be on the side of the genocide at the same time uh, it's still not passed I'll believe it when it's passed there's still some shenanigans going on right now as we speak in the Senate if it doesn't come out this week from the Senate you'll know that's why
3: yeah, and we know that, I guess, Wendy Sherman at the State Department was resisting this for various reasons. There are reports that John Kerry saying this could be unhelpful to my climate negotiations. Let's just sort of uh, soft pedal this or, or push it down the pike a little bit. Meanwhile, Josh Rogan, my guest from The Washington Post, his book is Chaos Under Heaven, a China expert. There was this episode that we talked about here on the show yesterday involving the Democracy Summit hosted by the Biden administration and this little kerfuffle, this little blow-up involving the Taiwanese representative who was censored. And they they actually took her video feed down because there was a map of Asia that showed sort of like color-coded countries based on their openness. And China was red for closed, correct. Taiwan was green for open, also correct. But this sort of set off some alarm bells among some people in the Biden administration. And they worried this would offend the Chinese this was during a panel on countering online authoritarianism, and then they engaged in some arguable online authoritarianism by, by censoring the slide. Then they blamed it on a technical glitch. Sources at Reuters or speaking to Reuters said that's not true. This was just a massive overreaction from the Biden administration. It just seems like a microcosm. To me, at least, of some of the incoherence here where we want to sort of stand with Taiwan and send a signal to China. But if that signal to China might offend China too much, then we're scared of it and we pull it down. Uh, what do you make of that whole mess?
5: Right. Well, actually, I think you explained it extremely well. Uh, you know, there's two issues here. One is what happened in Two is what it means. And my, from my sources, from my own personal reporting of my, of my administration, which my, my, my take on what happened is uh, something in between the two stories that you just heard. In other words, it was a conscious decision. Uh, the State Department says uh, it was a decision made at the White House. and The White House said it was a decision made at the State Department. So that's kind of a circular firing squad. Uh, but the bottom line is that it was one of these things where no one was doing slides. They didn't realize they had – the technical glitch that they're referring to is that they, didn't, they, were, they thought they had turned off the share screen on the Zoom, but they never turned it off. So the Taiwanese used the share screen to put up a slide, and everyone was like, wait a minute, he's not supposed to be able to do that. So that's the technical glitch. But there was also a substantive thing things so they're like, oh, wait a minute, what's he saying? We have to make sure nobody thinks that's what we think. And so that kind of double confusion psychology is, as you correctly pointed out – uh, symbolic of our muddled Taiwan policy, which is on the one hand is rooted in strategic ambiguity, which is meant to not let the Chinese government know if we would really come to Taiwan these taiwan's defense in a military contingency but meanwhile we treat them as a half country and you know we have a relationship with them but it's unofficial and we want them to be in international organizations but when the pandemic comes out they can't come to the meetings and then they can come to the democracy summit great but oh the president can't come oh we gotta have some other guy come oh okay then we got to know everything that he's going to say so he doesn't say the wrong thing and that's just shows how the point yeah, they're being treated like second-class citizens. Meanwhile, the threat is rising. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping's pressure is is rising. Meanwhile, uh, you know, they're 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 under siege and they need our help. And that's not to say that we need to that we can't overreact. Right? The the big. Thing about the china challenge is that you know we there are there is a risk of overreacting and there is a risk of 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 you know putting everything into the into the category of five alarm fire but on taiwan it's actually pretty bad okay and we have to come up with a new approach because the challenge has changed and i don't see any real uh you know appetite in this town to do well that. and, and it's
3: not just just taiwan the rap sheet is long and i go through it all the time the rap sheet is taiwan the rap sheet is killing Indian troops. The rap sheet is persecuting Christians. The rap sheet is genocide and concentration camps and re-education camps against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. The rap sheet is Hong Kong and trampling democracy and jailing journalists. Uh, The the rap sheet is obstructing investigation into the origin of a pandemic that's killed millions of people. I mean, it just goes on and on. And yet with that backdrop, uh, I saw the report, I think it was yesterday, Nicaragua has become the latest country that has Derecognized, if you will, Taiwan as a separate country, and they have now changed their diplomatic position in Nicaragua to reflect what the Chinese Communist Party wants them to say, and they received some Chinese COVID vaccines, it seems, uh, in, in exchange for that, although the reporting that I've seen is that these Chinese vaccines are not very good at all and, and don't help at all against Omicron, for example. But it's not the first Western hemisphere country – to flip on Taiwan and and change to marching in line with uh, with Beijing, this has happened a few different times over the years, and it seems like the various policies of sticks and carrots that the Chinese have been employing now all around the world, it's it's working for them. They are on the march, and it's it's succeeding for them. Even with everyone angry about the things that they're doing, it seems like the the movement of China. Is in the direction that Beijing overall has to be pretty happy
5: with. Is is that a misread on my part? Well, listen, I uh, you know I don't I think it's a it's a mixed picture actually because you know think about what you just, in the Taiwan space you're absolutely right. China is increasing its leverage and its power. And think about what you just said. What they did was they blackmailed a country with with life saving medicines. They dangled j- jabs over. Uh, but anyway, they they definitely uh, coerced these people into abandoning taiwan uh, which is their political agenda not their economic agenda not in the interests of solving the pandemic and that's what right. we're dealing with we're dealing with a party that will make you bet your life on siding with taiwan or abandoning democratic values and that should tell you everything you need to know about the nature of the chinese communist party and the threat we face and yeah, the, fa- the the fact is that we don't have a response for that and we need one and we need one quick and you know i hope People uh, in power are working on that now. Yeah, I mean it's a terrible
3: look for the Chinese. I think it has really alienated a lot of people. A lot of people are furious at them but that leverage is still there and they have planted the economic seeds that they can then use as uh, tools of coercion all across the planet and they are on the march. Whether there is a a strategy, a coherent one for the free world to counter this I think is very much an open question and uh, it comes back in my mind to the rap sheet that I just – went through just a partial list of really horrible actions from the regime in recent years, uh, and someone who watches all of it extremely closely and reports on it uh, with, I think I would argue, unparalleled frequency and access and sort of insight, especially in Washington, is my guest, Josh Rogan. He is at the Washington Post. You can read his stuff there. You can also pick up his book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, she, and the battle for the 21st century. Josh, really appreciate it. Let's talk again. Anytime. Josh Rogan on The Guy Benson Show. We will step aside and return after this.
2: Guy Benson will be right
3: back. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. This tweet made me stop in my tracks last night. ESPN, from their official account, tweeted a clip from, I guess, like a documentary or a special that they put together about the Bubba Wallace noose NASCAR incident, remember this? Was it last year? Midway through the year or so, I had forgotten entirely about it because it was a complete misunderstanding slash hoax. You had a black NASCAR driver who thought that there was a noose tied in his garage before a race. It became a huge thing. Everyone was outraged. The whole community of NASCAR rallied around him. The FBI came in. And looked into it and just determined, oh, it was not a noose at all. It was a hand pull for the door, and it just kind of resembled a noose. And it had been there for months, and no one had any idea that Wallace would have been assigned to that particular garage. And in fact, similar-looking hand pulls were elsewhere on other garages sort of along that row. So I kind of understood at the time why he might see it and think it was a noose and wonder and be upset, but then – It was looked into, and the darkest evil possibility turned out not to be what happened at all. And it was fine, you know, like, okay, if people thought this might have been a threat or racist or something to to rally around your colleague, that that's all great. But ultimately what does matter is, is this real? Did it actually happen the way it appeared? And the answer to those questions were no, it did not. That's what the FBI determined. Again, it had been there for months. This was not targeting Bubba Wallace at all. It was a coincidence and something that was not a noose that was misinterpreted and blown up into a thing. All right, so you can, you can perhaps remember this little controversy now that I've reminded you of it. I actually went back. It's so like, didn't Wallace himself acknowledge that this wasn't real at some point? And, yeah, he gave an interview or he put out a statement where he said he was relieved to learn that, in fact, he had not been targeted. Fine. I thought we would never hear about it again, even though there was, you could argue, some overreaction, certainly in the media or whatever at the time. Here's ESPN now doing a documentary about this like it's some sinister thing. And in the clip they put out in their headline last year, a noose was found in Bubba Wallace's stall at Talladega Super Speedway. The next day, the NASCAR community stood with him in unity. Then they quote him about how terrified he was or whatever. This is just misinformation if you're going to put it out this way. Like, we know the rest of the story, which was, that's not what happened. That's not what this was. I don't know why you would go and dredge at something, dredge it up, put it out there as some sort of a hate crime or threat when reality and the FBI investigation proved that it was not that at all. I don't know what ESPN was thinking there.
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
3: Time for a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased that you all are choosing to join us. Thank you very much for that. Every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com. You've also got the free podcast every day available if you would like to listen that way, as many of you do. Fox News alert as we begin. A few things here. We are keeping an eye on the situation in Kentucky. I see that the governor, Andy Bashir, is making some remarks following a visit on the ground from President Biden touring the devastation. It's a situation, of course, that we will continue to monitor. Also on Wall Street, the Dow closes up 382 points today, ending just shy of 36,000. So it closed at 35,926, this after the Fed signaled three interest rate hikes coming up in 2022. Joining us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, the 23rd Congressional District down there. Congressman, welcome back to the show. Merry
1: Christmas. Hey, guy. Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me on, man. Love your show.
3: Well, I appreciate that. I want to start with uh, the border and the border crisis. We have you on because you represent that neck of the woods. And it's a point that I've made now a few times in recent weeks – Sometimes the media coverage will flare up because of some particular event. For example, all those uh, Haitian nationals under the bridge and the fake controversy about Border Patrol and whips and horses and all that. And so that got a lot of coverage. Then the coverage recedes. Some people keep covering it like our colleague Bill Malugin here at Fox and Julio Rosas, my colleague at townhall.com. But much of the mainstream press, at least nationally, sort of goes away. But that doesn't mean that the crisis is gone or even mitigated. And in fact, we've seen some horrible, deadly incidents in the last few days, a crash that killed 55 in Mexico, a tractor trailer filled with hundreds of illegal immigrants on their way to America. Uh, That was just awful. Then there was another crash from a smuggler who T-boned innocent U.S. citizens in Texas fleeing the police, a, a car filled with illegal immigrants. Uh, Those are just two examples. We've seen some of the stats of border sectors being still overrun day in and day out. Lots of gotaways as well. What are you seeing on a daily basis? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Or is it kind of just more of the same on this bad trajectory?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's uh, more of the same, and nothing has changed, and uh, life on the border is as bad as it's ever been. What you see is, it's in the years past, or decades past, there were spikes, and then the spike would go away. Well, this spike has never gone away, and you're seeing historic number after historic number. Uh, that piece that, that Julio wrote uh, in the townhall.com, amazing, because... Uh, you know, we, the, uh, the the border in Texas has gotten a lot of coverage. Like, I've made it a point to just constantly highlight what's happening. But the border in Arizona and Mexico has really gotten no coverage. And to highlight what's happening there is important because, really, it's the same thing what happened in Texas at the very beginning of this crisis, where you just had thousands of migrants coming over with no end in sight. You had these small kind of areas that had never seen that level of 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 illegal immigration before. That's what's happening in Arizona. But nothing has changed, Guy. It is as bad as it's ever been.
3: And I want to pick up on one of the interesting quotes from that townhall.com piece from Julio. You mentioned he's in Arizona. He was covering Yuma sector. And the numbers there have just been staggering in recent days. And he was quoting one of the officials out there who said that border enforcement has just become border enrollment, basically meaning that you have a bunch of our personnel and resources being used to just process and, you know, do paperwork for this crush of people who show up and they want to get caught. They want to be apprehended. They want to be processed. They want to be released. I know that the Biden administration has at least nominally reinstated under court order the remain in Mexico policy. I'm not sure if that's actually feeling any different on the ground in places like Yuma or in in your district. But does that reflect that quote that I just paraphrased? Does that reflect what you're hearing from border patrol officials about the job that they are being forced to do by this overwhelming influx of illegal immigrants versus, you know, patrolling the border, enforcing the border against those who don't want to get caught, those who do want to get away, who would be, I would imagine disproportionately, more dangerous from a public safety perspective.
1: No, you're 100 percent right, and uh, the border patrol uh, agents—they just feel overrun. And you know, as I as I've made my way around this past year uh, at the district, all parts of it. You know, I represent three separate sectors: El Paso sector, the Big Bend sector, and the Del Rio sector. Uh, this is the number one thing that that uh, border patrol agents ask me ask me for. They go, Tony. We don't want to be in these processing centers. We want to be out in the field catching bad guys. Help us get out of these processing centers and help us get back out into the field. You know, during the, uh, the Del Rio incident where you had these th- tens of thousands of Haitians under the bridge, 90 percent of Border Patrol agents were processing agents. And there was five checkpoints in and around that area that were completely shut down. So that's what's happening in Arizona. When you get a little spike like this, it's like it's 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 all hands on deck to try to, to get through these um, – to, to process these, these, these folks as fast as possible. It, something has to change. You mentioned Remain in Mexico policy. Well, and by, and, by the know, way, hang what, on, Congressman,
3: before yeah, we get yeah, to Remain yeah. in Mexico, because I actually really want to hear your answer on that, but just to put a finer point on what you just said, when you have to then surge agents – To an area for all this processing, or as the quote said, border enrollment, and then other checkpoints get shut down, the criticism, the concern that's raised is sometimes this is a coincidence that benefits dangerous people, cartels, smugglers, traffickers, etc. In some cases, it's actually choreographed. They create a surge knowing what the response will be. And then they can do what they need to with far less oversight, sneaking potential bad guys into the country elsewhere because our people aren't able to do their job because they're you know overwhelmed, overrun doing another job.
1: That's that's exactly right. I mean they've okay. overrun the system, and they, being the cartels, at the end of the day, the cartels are the ones profiting from this. But it's really anyone that that is uh, in this nefarious activities. What, what absolutely uh, keeps me up at night is another 9-11 event type uh, occurring, and we could have stopped it if we would have secured our border. And you know what? It's no longer just the southern border because, like you said, when there's a spike, you've got to get these agents from somewhere. So what is happening is they're pulling agents from the northern border. Matter of fact, a lot of them are in Eagle Pass in my district right now that have come from the northern border. What does that mean? That means now it's, it's no longer, hey, the southern border is wide open. Now it's all our borders are wide open because our agents are are too busy, or they're not too busy. Their their full-time job is now processing these folks instead of keeping our borders safe. And, and clearly, Congressman, is dangerous.
3: Yeah, and the word is out. I saw a reporting from Bill Malugin on Twitter, I believe it was yesterday, that over the weekend alone in one of these sectors, it was thousands of people coming in from 30 different countries over the course of one weekend. So people are learning the lesson here, which has been broadcast, unfortunately, loud and clear from the Biden administration. Our borders are open. You can come. We're not going to send you home. We might send you back to Mexico. I want to let you finish your thought on the newly quasi, I guess, reinstated remain in Mexico policy. What are you seeing? What are your observances, uh, your observations there?
1: Yeah, look, look. House Republicans, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy and, and Scalise and myself, I've hosted 40 members of Congress in my district. Over 100 Republicans have come to the border and seen this. We have pushed that the Trump Remain in Mexico policy worked and to reinstate it. And the administration did not want to go down this route, but they did. They reinstated the, the Remain in Mexico policy on December 6th. Fantastic. Right on the surface, you go, great, a win. Well, you peel back the onion. They started in El Paso, the El Paso sector, and they're only they're only uh, doing 30 people a day. 30. I mean, in the Del Rio sector alone, you have over a thousand apprehensions a day, not to include Yuma, not to include El Paso and all the other sectors. So when you're only doing 30 and you're telling people like, no, 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 we restarted the remain in Mexico policy, uh, sort of. But the reality yeah, is not putting the number of folks. Exactly. Yeah, they're slow rolling it so
3: they can continue fighting it in court because they keep saying they're doing it only because the court told them they had to, but they want to keep fighting it and and win a lawsuit and then undo the successful policy again. And their so-called compliance, I mean, it sounds like a joke based on how you just described it. You did mention a moment ago, Congressman, Border Patrol agents, and you talked to them basically every day. There are a lot of frustrations. There's a, a dearth of agents and personnel protecting the border. And there's a concern that some of them might lose their jobs over this uh, vaccine mandate. You're trying to do something about that. Tell us about that situation.
1: Yeah, we put together the BASE Act, which protects uh, Border Patrol agents from getting fired that, uh, that don't uh, take the vaccine. And we're not talking about, you know, a handful of agents. We're talking thousands, hundreds, if not uh, over 1,000 agents. There's only 18,000 agents in service. So that's a significant amount of the workforce. And right now, um, you know, if an agent gets fired, it takes 400 days to replace them. And then you got to train a new agent. So you can't just turn the spigot back on. So the BASE Act protects Border Patrol agents uh, from the federal government fire, uh, using federal funds to uh to fire them for the for the vaccine mandate uh we got a lot of co-sponsors on it we got to keep pushing i go back to it like we may be in the minority but we're not going to be in the minority forever and when we and when the house republicans take back the house we got to have a plan on day one i think part of that is making sure that our border patrol agents are protected against these vaccine mandates because it looks like there's no end in sight with this whole uh covid and this administration
3: Since you brought up politics, my last subject for you is kind of poll after poll and now a lot of sort of uh, analyses from the smart set and the political class saying, oh, gosh, there might be something going on here involving Hispanic voters moving to the right, not just in Miami-Dade County and Cuban-Americans in Florida, but Puerto Ricans in the sort of Orlando, Tampa area, in the middle of the state in Florida, all along – the Rio Grande in your state, in your district, there have been some really significant changes there just in the last few years. What can you tell us about that? How real is this rightward shift among many Latino voters? I saw one poll recently has uh, Biden or on the, on the Republican versus Democrat generic ballot. Uh, it was an exact tie among Hispanic voters, which would be a disaster for the Democrats. How much of that is real? and what's driving it in your view because that's i mean this is this is your district these are your people i mean it, you, you've got to have some interesting thoughts on this
1: yeah no it's real it's absolutely real and my district is over 70 percent hispanic and i'm mexican-american uh you know in the the southern part arizona new mexico texas california mexican-american is predominantly the hispanic uh uh sir sir area there so Uh, It's very real. And uh, the reason why people are are kind of shifting to the Republican Party is, one, is the the Democratic Party has gone crazy. Like they're 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 not even hiding it anymore. Like they're a socialist party. That's one. But two is we got to show up and we got to show up in in uh, not just two weeks before the election. Like we got to show up early and often and we got to we got to highlight to them. You know, what are we going to do? What is our plan? You know, I just um, uh, I I just uh, got uh, selected to be the uh, vice chair of the Congressional Hispanic Conference. And this is a group of of members in Congress that kind of uh, lead that Hispanic effort. Uh, It's been dormant. I mean, this this uh, this conference has been dormant for a long time. I'm trying to reignite it. Because there's an opportunity for the Republican Party to run up the score with uh, Hispanic Americans. And we don't have to change anything. We don't have to be squishy or try to you know, be soft about it. Be firm in who we are. Right? We're God-loving people. We believe in national security. We believe in law and order. You know, we believe in uh, uh, economy and the infl- you know, this inflation is crazy. We don't have to change anything. Just show up, be vocal. And at the end of the day, when we win back the House, we have to deliver.
3: Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, down there on the border, these issues play into his day-to-day constituents' lives every single day. He hears from them. We have him on here somewhat regularly because we are not taking our eye off of this issue, even if a lot of the media is very easily distracted, sometimes a cynic might say willfully Distracted because it's not something playing well for an administration that has precipitated this crisis. Tony Gonzalez has a front-row seat to it in his district. He's fighting all the time. Congressman, always appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Guy. Merry Christmas, brother. Merry Christmas.
3: And we'll be right back after this. The
2: Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: I'm Guy Benson. Merry Christmas. Glad to have you here. I want to do a little piece here on the segment about accountability. I think sometimes what's important is to remember when there's a bunch of heated rhetoric about something and then revisit whether or not the heated rhetoric was correct or justified. We've done this, for example, on the tax cuts for Republicans. Back in 2017, the Democrats made a bunch of pronouncements, predictions, virtually all of which have been proven false. And that should matter. There should be accountability. Credibility should depend on whether people are right about things when they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And we hear often from the left in particular that if something were to happen, some proposal were to pass or not pass or what have you, they just they go straight to 11. Right. It's an 11 out of 10. They get into catastrophic language. And almost always they say people are going to die, right? If the Republicans get their way, people are going to die. And usually, you know, women and people of color will die the most. And it's racist. Like, we we know the song and dance routine because they do it all the time. Well, here's just one example. This is from yesterday. Yesterday, 2017, so four years ago, the Internet died. Or so we were told. This is Ajit Pai, the former FCC chairman. Under Trump, he tweeted this yesterday. On this date, 2017, the Internet died. Or so we were told by politicians, journalists, and others who should have known better. And he has a few screenshots of the predictions that were made at the time. Senate Democrats said, oh, the Internet's going to slow down to, you know, you're going to have to tweet one word at a time. Internet speeds are going to crash if the Trump administration... Under PI and the FCC, if they repeal some of these regulations, net neutrality regulations. It was framed, yes, as a matter of life and death, this change in internet regulations. CNN had a headline on their website The internet as we know it dies, or the end of the internet as we know it. That was basically the headline. The internet's gonna die. The Republicans have killed it. People are gonna die. Senators were saying this, media outlets were hyping this, and Ajit Pai notes four years later, after the policy went through anyway, despite all the crazy hyperbole, since that, mean fixed broadband speeds are up 172%, mobile speeds up 300%, millions more Americans have internet access. And networks remain open. All of that overheated, insane rhetoric was wrong. They predicted the end of the internet and a lot of pain for a lot of people. The internet is more accessible to more people at faster speeds than ever before. They were wrong. We should remember that. It's called accountability. Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson.
3: Back on the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the program today and halfway through the week. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program needs. I would like to delve into this story. If you perhaps have heard of it, maybe not. It is sensitive. I think I try to talk about these issues in a sensitive and nuanced way. It is the transgender swimmer controversy at the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, of the Ivy League. Have you heard about this? I'll give you the background here and read from a story at the UK Daily Mail that's been covering this along with some other outlets. And let me just say at the outset that as a member of the LGBTQ community myself, I think that it is incumbent on me to be empathetic and to be respectful and understand that these are sometimes thorny and difficult questions. And what I try to do especially on trans issues, which I think are sort of uh, trickier than some of the other questions like same-sex marriage. There's been a growing level of support for same-sex marriage. Now a majority of even Republican voters support it. It's different with trans stuff because I think it's harder for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And my general philosophy is do unto others, right, the golden rule, and try to treat people with respect and dignity and kindness – and if people have preferred pronouns and preferred names, I try to go with those. And I know sometimes it's hard, right? People who are doing the non-binary thing and their pronouns are they or them, it gets very confusing and hard to follow sometimes. And the writing, the syntax gets all mangled and it's hard to sort of follow sometimes who is referring to whom and all of that. But I try to muddle through and get it right and treat people the way they want to be treated and call people the things that they want to be called. And I think we can affirm the dignity and value of every person, even if it's a little bit disorienting for some folks, right? That's my general proposition. As I've said before, I think when it comes to athletics and athletic competition, things get a little bit more complicated. It's not just about treating someone with dignity and kindness. It's about basic fairness and yes, biology. So there is a swimmer, a varsity swimmer, who swims for the Penn women's team. Although she competed as a man for three years, then took some time off, transitioned, took hormones and that sort of thing, and is now back, still on the varsity team, but this time on the ladies' side, as someone who is now identifying as a woman. She's now calling herself Leah Thomas. And the thing is, she is absolutely crushing all of her competition. And I don't think you have to be some sort of culture warrior, anti-LGBTQ bigot to look at what's happening and say, you know what, that really isn't right. It's not fair. Let me read to you from this Daily Mail story just to give you a sense of how this is playing out. A third female swimmer has now spoken out to voice her frustrations, of competing against UPenn transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, saying that it's, quote, impossible to beat her. Thomas broke two national records when she competed in the female races at the Zippy Invitational earlier this month. She previously competed on the UPenn men's swim team for three years before transitioning and undergoing hormone treatments for nearly two and a half years. A female swimmer from Niagara University who wishes to remain anonymous and competed against Thomas at the Zippy Invitational says that there's intimidation and discouragement that she feels racing the transgender athlete. Quote, swimming against Leah was intimidating. The Niagara University senior said it was hard going into a race knowing there was no way I was going to get first. I knew I could drop my time but I also knew there was no way I would physically be able to beat her in the race or even catch up to her, the athlete said. It's hard working your whole life at a sport and going to big competitions and seeing someone who is more physically talented than you. However, it is even more discouraging to have them right next to you and knowing you won't ever be on the same physical level as them. Swimming against Leah, I knew deep down It was going to be impossible for me to swim as fast as her, the discouraged athlete admitted. At the end of the day, I think this is actually a very magnanimous way of putting this, by the way, this anonymous competitor. At the end of the day, I respect her decision to compete. I do feel that people are going to have a bad reaction to her life choices, which is not fair on her. But from an athletic standpoint, I do see why a lot of athletes are going to be upset. And that makes sense to me. Sort of like you do you. You live your life. We can support you. You shouldn't be attacked for living the life you want to live and identifying the way you want to identify. But if you want to enter the realm of athletic competition and you have the muscle mass and and all of these characteristics as a biological male, someone who was born male, who grew up male, who competed in varsity swimming in this sport as a male and then switched over, I think there are a lot of people, even very perhaps progressive or open-minded people who would say... You know what? No, there's got to be a line somewhere. So Leah Thomas, with her winning time at this invitational, was less than a minute off of the world record pace set by U.S. Olympic champion Katie Ledecky in 2017. The winning result also meets the NCAA standard required to qualify for a championship, which means that Thomas will be automatically entered to compete in the national championship meet for women in Atlanta in March. In the week after the Zippy Invitational, two of Thomas's female Penn teammates anonymously spoke out about their frustrations having a transgender teammate. So these are people on her team who are also not attaching their name to it because they don't want reprisals. In fact, they're kind of told, not only is she not have a problem with it, you need to openly celebrate it. And that's got to be a very tough pill to swallow, quite frankly. So they are anonymously talking about this situation because – As the story goes on to explain, if Leah Thomas simply hits some of her best times that she achieved when she was swimming as a man, she will shatter like U.S. records. And when she was competing as a man, she was not a standout swimmer, but just being kind of like a mediocre, perfectly fine, passable male athlete, those numbers are good enough to be record holders and record breakers on the female level. So some of these teammates are not happy. One of the teammates spoke to outkick the coverage on the condition of anonymity because she's afraid that making comments about a trans athlete could hurt her chances of getting a job after she graduates. This is the climate of fear where everyone sort of will whisper to each other, this really isn't fair, but they're afraid to say it out loud under their own name because of sort of the woke mob, which is what we talk about all the time. This is what this... Penn Teammate says, quote, pretty much everyone individually has spoken to our coaches about not liking this. Our coach just really likes winning. He's like most coaches. I secretly think everyone just knows it's the wrong thing to do. And that's what apparently they're saying in private. And the coach who has his pronouns in his, you know, social media profile. So it sounds like a pretty, you know, woke, progressive person. Also, here's your star swimmer crushing the competition so it's, you know, winning, and coaches like to win, but at what cost, and is that really fair? This unidentified female swimmer at Penn said that when the school points to the team all supporting Leah Thomas, she says that support, quote, is fake. When the whole team is together, we have to be like, oh my gosh, go Leah, that's great, you're amazing, it's very fake, she says. I mentioned this earlier on paper, if Leah Thomas gets back to Will Thomas's best names, that was the uh, male name that she had competing as a male just a few years ago. If Leah Thomas achieves those same numbers, those numbers are female world records. Like the most elite women of all time would be beaten by the sort of middling previous scores of Leah Thomas competing as a man. One of these teammates says this, when I have kids, I'm going to hope they're all boys, because if I have any girls and they want to play sports in college, good luck. That's how fundamentally unfair it feels, like with the deck being stacked. A second female swimmer from this team, also a teammate of Leah Thomas, anonymously voiced her complaints about Thomas, despite the entire team being, quote, strongly advised not to speak to the media. Right? So you have this situation where you're getting your ass kicked every day, and it's not even close. Like I saw one race, Leah Thomas won by 15 seconds, which is crazy. Wait to hear a, another score, another time differential coming up later in the story. They're told, don't talk to the media, be supportive. You have to celebrate what's happening. You've trained your whole life to maximize your opportunity to succeed. You're never going to win, and you have to be happy about it. Of course that's going to breed resentment. The second teammate being quoted here has stepped forward again anonymously to explain how the team is angry over what is being perceived as a lack of fairness as Thomas smashes record after record in the pool. This swimmer said that teammates are sometimes upset and crying as they know their own times are going to be obliterated. By Thomas, They feel so discouraged because no matter how much work they put in, they're going to lose. And then there's this, I think, very telling anecdote at one of these swim meets. Teammate says, usually everyone claps. Everyone's yelling and cheering when someone wins a race. In this race, Leah touched the wall and it was just silent in there. When fellow Penn swimmer Anna Kaladasne, I'm probably butchering that name, finished second, The crowd erupted in applause. So Leah wins by a long shot. It's not even competitive. So there's your big champion. And the crowd goes the opposite of wild. The team is silent. And then the second place finisher finally finishes. And everyone cheers for her. I think that speaks volumes about what the perception is here. Thomas's record-breaking time beating her own teammate, out of first place, listen to this, she beat her own teammate to win by 38 seconds at that swim meet. 38 seconds. Like, honestly, Leah Thomas could be up out of the pool drying off and putting on street clothes by the time the first biological female finishes behind her 38 seconds later. The second anonymous source, is from the Daily Mail, who spoke out, says that Thomas can be overheard bragging, saying that was so easy. I was cruising, Thomas alleged to have said, bragging in front of her teammates. At least I'm still number one in the country, even though she was unhappy with her time because she's trying to get back to her times that she previously achieved competing as a male, which would be, again, a world record. So you're crushing everyone, and you're still upset about it because you know you can do better, and you're sort of bragging about it. Well, that was easy. That's just like adding insult to injury. Quote, well, she's obviously number one in the country because there's a clear physical advantage after having gone through male puberty and getting to train with testosterone for years, this teammate said. Even without Leah, we had the chance to win the Ivy League this year. That was a huge deal for us. We train every single day. We give up so much for this sport, and I love swimming. I do it because I love it. It's been a part of my life forever, and this is a slap in the face that the NCAA doesn't care about the integrity of women's sports. Now, what does Leah Thomas have to say about this? She appeared on a podcast, a swimming podcast, and she just said, yeah, I think it is fair. Cut nine.
5: Everybody is able to compete um, in the category they're most comfortable with unless there's a proven – unfair advantage that they have. Um, And this does a very good job of including trans women and not invading anybody's privacy or making anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, Yeah. I think they, those guidelines are, are very good.
3: So that's the voice of Leah Thomas, the female swimmer crushing everyone saying, well, unless there's evidence of an unfair advantage, I think what you're hearing from these other female swimmers is, well, the, Evidence of that unfair advantage is right in front of our faces. Victories by 15 seconds, 38 seconds, smashing records. I think even a lot of people who are pro-trans rights and are very upset when people are bullied or targeted with crimes or hate or discriminated against because they're trans, people who would be shoulder to shoulder with those people under all circumstances would also say, This is not fairness. And if we're going to ignore some of the biological characteristics involved here, then I'm not sure what the point is of having men's sports and women's sports. Why not just have sports and see what happens? You'd have men dominate virtually everything all the time. Is that fair? Is that fair to girls and to women? I think there's going to be some people who aren't on the bandwagon for this one. Because if you care about fairness and you care about women and women's rights and women being able to thrive and achieve and strive, and then they're up against a situation like this where the deck is completely stacked against them, I don't know. And there's a lot of folks who are afraid to say any of this, certainly on the record, because they don't want to be labeled a transphobe like they're doing, for example, to J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books. There's a very large they not really that large. There's a very loud group of online screamers. The woke brigade constantly saying that she needs to be boycotted. Burn your books of Harry Potter. Never do any of that stuff again because she's a transphobe because she's just saying there's a value to womanhood. J.K. Rowling, again, causing controversy because the U.K. police now announcing they're not going to count rapes committed by people with male genitalia. They're not going to count those as rapes by men if the rapist says that they're a woman. And J.K. Rowling was like, that sounds crazy and upside down to me. And people are like, you're a transphobe. That's how ridiculous and dysfunctional the conversation around this is. And look, I understand. There are nuances. It's not easy to wade through some of this stuff while trying to be empathetic and respectful. But I think we have to have some of these conversations. And I think that if I were a parent and I had a daughter— And she was competing and getting crushed by someone who was just competing as a male. I think that would not sit well with me. And I think it's okay for girls and women and parents to feel that way without being called haters. And this is where I think there's overreach sometimes. If there's one thing that the woke enforcers do regularly is overreach and alienate. And this would be one of those examples. The Guy Benson Show returns after this.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
5: I am really excited and honored to be with you. Today and to share this remarkable occasion.
3: Back on the Guy Benson show, that Senator Richard Blumenthal, who appeared over the weekend in person at the Connecticut People's World Committee Amistad Awards, it is an affiliate of the Communist Party of the United States. And he showed up as a surprise special guest to distribute awards, special recognition, at this commie event, actually the Communist Party. And he decided that he would lend his name and his reputation as a United States Senator to give some awards to communists. It's pretty amazing. This was uncovered by the Yankee Institute. FoxNews.com covered it as well. I'm surprised he went there without saying something like, I remember fighting you commies back in Nam. Right, this is the same Senator Blumenthal who lied for his entire adult life about serving in Vietnam. He did not. I wonder if the voters of Connecticut have any problem with any of this. Or if they'll just be like, yeah, let's re-elect him. That seems to be their approach to Democrats, no matter how bad they are. That's Connecticut, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Final hour, coming up. Time for the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here on this Wednesday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com. And The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is growing in popularity, expanding across the country by popular demand, And we are fans of it here. We encourage you to check it out. Give it a try. Let us know about it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, there might be some Republicans on Capitol Hill who might want to clink champagne glasses tonight because there's a chance that the Democrats build back better plan, as we mentioned earlier, could be. Dead for now, maybe dead permanently. Democrats seem to be moving on to other issues for the time being. What to make of all of these reports? Joining us now from Capitol Hill is Chad Pergram, Fox News Channel's congressional correspondent. And Chad, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So did Christmas come early here for the Republicans, or is this just kind of a wait-and-see situation where the Democrats are saying we might be punting this into the next year, but it's not over yet. What are you hearing?
0: Well, remember, sometimes at Christmas you get those gifts when you were a kid and they were great at Christmas. And then you got into the new year and you were tired of them. So this could be the type of thing that happens to the Republicans, that this bill is not going anywhere right now. Uh, It's going to be just, you know, from a calendar perspective unless uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have a flux capacitor and a DeLorean uh, to get this done before the end of the year. Even if they had the deal now, it would be tough to get it through the Senate by the 24th of December and then probably get a changed version, a Senate version back through the House of Representatives. OK, so they've run out of track. But to say that it's dead is probably premature. Now, Joe Manchin has said, oh, I want a pause in the bill. Well, he's probably going to get that. Uh, That probably helps Democrats in the sense that this is a massive bill. They have to run a lot of stuff past the parliamentarian. But the longer these things stretch out, remember, we thought they might pass this bill in the summer and the fall, uh, you know, in conjunction with the infrastructure bill in September. That was the thought, You, you know, the longer this drags out, obviously, this gets a little dimmer for the Democrats. Don't rule anything out, though. But here's the problem. You have a 50-50 Senate, and pretty soon Democrats will actually have a four-seat margin in the House. Um, You don't want to play with fire. Anything can happen. Democrats remember what happened with Obamacare in 2009. They passed the first version through the Senate in uh, Christmas, Christmas time, the House in November. This is 09. And then it took them another three months to recalibrate everything, March of 10. So, again, the longer it sets out there— You know, it's kind of like house guests and fish. You know, it starts to smell a little bit. Mm -hmm. But sometimes bills just aren't ready yet. And, uh, you know, they come back from the dead.
3: And I'll remind everyone, if they need reminding, that after Obamacare stretched into that election year of 2010, Democrats got wiped out that November, losing 63 seats in the House, which is just a breathtaking number. And that's kind of been the conventional wisdom, Chad, that if this thing is punted into an election year, then the likelihood that it gets picked back up and passed in a hard-fought election year is diminished. I mean, Schumer was the one who circled Christmas on the calendar. He's been saying that now for weeks. we got to get this done by Christmas. Now they're saying, never mind, let's look at 2022. I guess there's a plausible scenario under which... Inflation pressures get a little bit better in 2022, and the White House quietly works with Manchin to hammer out something that he could, I guess, swallow in 2022, and then they announced a, a surprise deal in the months to come. I just wonder, is he going to really feel that pressure to act because he's not terribly excited about spending trillions of additional dollars? He's not going for any of these budget gimmicks. The math doesn't really change all that much he's got his bipartisan infrastructure win that's popular at home that he helped coordinate and and really make sure that that thing was shepherded through to passage in law i just don't know if the incentives line up with the democrats being able to resurrect this thing from the quasi dead in the middle of an election year when the dynamics may not be dramatically change. I guess that's that's sort of the calculus where there's a possibility there's a plausible scenario, maybe. But it still seems somewhat remote
0: from where I sit. It, you know, I wouldn't read too much into the idea of it being an election year, although, you know, that is conventional wisdom. Oh, you don't do these big things in election year. Voters don't really know which side of the calendar you do something on unless you do something right before the election, which may help or hurt your side, depending on what it is. Uh, Some of the die for the Democrats has already been cast uh, in terms of what they've passed and the things that voters don't like about them and things that their base does like about what they're trying to do. Remember, they're going to have to court their base if if they don't get this done, their base, whether you like the policies in the bill or not, are going to be mad as fire. (laughs) I mean, this is going to be incendiary, frankly, if they don't pass this bill. And maybe that's what uh, they need, at least from a political perspective, to kind of spark this blaze to get this done because, you know, legislation just doesn't hang out that long. And the fundamental problem, as I always say, is the math. You're doing this big bill and you need every single star aligned precisely. Almost everybody on in the House, everybody on in the Senate and you can't do big bills like that if you know just one of those little things is out of alignment and that's where right. it is right now.
3: Yep. And I would just say that if it's Kirsten Cinema or it's Joe Manchin, they have demonstrated several times in recent months that they are willing to withstand furious pushback from the left democrat base if they feel like it's not the right thing to do and in this case we're talking about passing Build Back Better, you know, chasing them into bathrooms didn't work, uh, chasing them in, from their house as they show up to work hasn't appeared to be a successful tactic thus far. So we'll see. In the meantime, though, what they're saying is, no, we're going to move on to voting rights. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Chad, but I think voting rights would require either a 60 vote threshold. And I don't think that they're anywhere close to getting 60 votes on the legislation, at least that I've seen, or it would require ending the filibuster, which is something that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have both ruled out. And apparently there are maybe half a dozen other Senate Democrats quietly hoping that they never have to vote on that because they don't want to do that. What is the strategy on pivoting to voting rights or whatever they want to call it, aside from a shiny new object to get the base all fired up and this time maybe not angry at Democrats for fighting amongst themselves, but angry at Republicans for opposing something. That's my cynical read. Is it too cynical?
0: No, you, you nailed it with a shiny new object, uh, a shiny old object in this case, because this is yep. something that's, uh, again, important to the Democratic base. They get something out there that the base likes. They So maybe we'll do voting rights. Maybe we can resurrect that from the dead, or this is the placeholder for the time being until we get the other bill worked out, which again, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here. They are still working through the text. The Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, has had some health problems, serious health problems. So vetting all this to make sure it comports with budget rules in the Senate is very hard. Uh, for all we know, that is taking more time just, just because of what her health concerns are. Um, so Democrats are, are kind of putting this out. there, saying, oh, here's this other thing. And they're also putting this out here because we are rapidly approaching the one year anniversary of January 6th. And of course, there's going to be a lot of stories and coverage about what happened a year ago. Uh, we've seen this from the one committee in the House of Representatives and, and text messages and what was going on. So that is another narrative. Uh, but it's also tied to the date. It, it's not completely cynical. Oh, we're going to move on to voting rights. But there is another agenda here that Democrats have, that they're trying to pass uh, a bill that's important uh, to their base on on voting rights as they go into 2022 and probably more significantly into 2024.
3: Is there any indication whatsoever that there would be 50 plus one votes to end the filibuster on any legislation, whether it's voting rights or Any other issue? Because I know Manchin has been asked that question approximately 10,000 times this year about the filibuster. He's always said no. Cinema has declined to support that as well. And as I mentioned, there are people reportedly in the Democratic caucus who aren't in favor of changing the filibuster rule, but they don't really want to say that and anger the base. Is there any movement there or is it going to be back to reporters chasing Joe Manchin down, asking him the same question? for the 10,001st time.
0: Yeah, no, they're going to be back chasing Joe Manchin all over the building. But you raised a very important point, and you said change the Senate rules. And Joe Manchin has said a couple of times, I'm not for changing the Senate filibuster rule. Without getting too deep in the weeds, it is nearly impossible to change the Senate rules. You need 67 votes to end a filibuster to get to a debate on a Senate rules change. Okay, so that's not going to happen. But here is the little bit of uh, you know, the, the, the narrow you know, strip of, of land here that maybe some senators are trying to land this on. They're talking about a carve out on filibusters just for voting rights bills. And this is kind of what they did in 2013 on the nuclear option uh, for, you know, all executive branch nominees except the Supreme Court. And that was changed then in 2017 for the Supreme Court. So maybe do another um, type of uh, carve out specific to this type of legislation. Now, again, maybe that they can. But they need Joe Manchin. You know, you can do that with only 51 votes. In other words, you get all 50 Democrats. And you have Vice President Harris break the tie. That is not changing the Senate rules. The Senate operates mostly on precedent. And so what they're doing here is establishing a new precedent. That's what they did in 2013 and 2017 with the nuclear options. So
3: this would be a new nuclear option.
0: That's right. But again, you know, we're we're just starting to hear about this and there hasn't been support for changing any of that before. And and again, you know, I come back to this 50-50 Senate. As soon as you crack that door open, and you're in a 50 50 Senate. And if the Senate flips next time or whatever the Democrats do, whether it be voting rights or D.C. statehood or immigration via that, because, well, that's the other thing. As soon as they crack that open, all the immigration people are going to say, can you do it for immigration, too? Yep. Can you do it for the you know, it's going to be every
3: yeah, every, it, every group will say this is a matter of life and death and we have to make another carve out. And I mean, it's we all know where meat that would box.
0: Go. Yes, absolutely. And, and so that is the problem. Uh, and, and also if the Senate flips, well, the Republicans can just undo those things again. And Democrats can't do anything about it because they've gotten rid of the filibuster. <laughs> you see, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's the Democrats probably who would be initially hamstrung by this. So that's the, again a deeper problem because right, so, they got
3: burned by it last time <laughs> mm-hmm. with the judges. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. You, you know, you, you know, sometimes you don't want to go down that road, uh, but there has been increasing Support in the Senate to alter the filibuster quote rules or precedent or whatever route they go. Uh, whether or not it's enough for voting rights, that is unclear. But again, you know, looking at narratives here, getting closer to one six, some of these messages with Mark Meadows and what was afoot and what was the former president doing and everything else. that might stoke some of those embers a little bit here. To burn more brightly for the Democrats because they know one six is coming up, and if you're going to pass something, well, you got to pass it and maybe connect it to that date and somehow and argue, you know, this was, you know, the democracy, you know, was set mm-hmm. ablaze that day, and so we need something to make sure that doesn't happen again.
6: Yeah,
3: well, and I would imagine, just a guess, that let's say we move into 2023 and there's a new Senate majority. And the Republicans take control if that were to happen. I wonder how many of the Democrats who are announcing their support for filibuster reform will all of a sudden change their mind again and be against it. It seems like that happens uh, quite often here on this particular issue specifically. And I think for that reason, there are there's a majority still of senators who do not want to touch that because they know that the shoe will be on the other foot again someday, perhaps someday soon. We'll watch all of it very closely and no one closer than Chad Pergram, Fox News congressional correspondent on Capitol Hill. Chad, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Merry Christmas. Likewise. Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, and we will be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Not a lot of happy stories out of Kentucky and some of the other communities ravaged by the tornadoes over the weekend. You've seen those images. It's just awful to look at. There are incredible stories of heroism and kindness that are emerging, and we want to highlight some of those, especially around Christmas. This is amazing. One of the men in Kentucky, Brian Brooks is his name. He was on Fox News. His wife and his sister-in-law, he knew they were trapped at their workplace. And rather than relying on other people or waiting and hoping for the best, he took matters into his own hands. Here's how he described it. Cut 12.
4: I just knew she said she was in a woman's bathroom. And um, so I, I was like, where's the woman's bathroom? And they were like, it's in the back. And I went around all the CFT guys and stuff and started climbing and started finding people and just helping everybody that I could as I could. And it was like the worst war movie you see on TV and then the people that were screaming that you could not see in the dark and the rain and the weather. Finally, uh, her sister was, on, was smashed on top of her and her sister seen my crazy shoes and stuff. I had different colors and stuff. She said she knew it was me. She said, so she started hauling Brian and uh, I knew it was them. and then I was like, oh my God. And I started trying to pull up and they were just... Everything was on top of them, you know. I can, I don't know how she could see my shoe, you know. I just, I could not see nothing, and there was a, the wall, the wall in the bathroom. Each wall fell on them like that, and they had rafters and roof, and some of the officers. Thank God, they I was, got me a crowbar, and they brought in some. Uh, we got some sawzalls. They finally brought in, and everywhere around, and started. You know, I was able to cut them out.
3: Uh, just unbelievable. As he recounts that story of literally digging his wife and her sister out of this rubble with them calling for help, and he helped them. Amid the darkness, amid tough weather conditions, that is almost miraculous, that story. There was another video that went viral featuring a man named Jim Finch, who's a Kentuckian, and he just knew that there was a lot of suffering and people were wiped out, So he packed up his huge grill and bought a bunch of food, drove half an hour to one of the worst hit communities, Mayfield, and just started grilling and handing out food because people needed it. And he just described why and cut
1: eight. I know they don't have no electricity, so that means they don't have no electricity, no restaurants,
4: no running water. So I just figured I'd do what I can do, show up with some food and some water.
3: That is America at its best. These people have lost everything. I have things I'm going to go help. So he's grilling up burgers and chicken and sausage and eggs and just handing them to strangers because he knew that was something that he could do actively to help, and he did it. And he probably fed some very desperate, very sad people. I see that the governor's wife, the first lady of Kentucky, is also starting an operation in an effort to Get a toy drive together for the kids who have just been totally decimated, who have nothing at Christmas, to make sure they have something this Christmas after their worlds were turned, in some cases, literally upside down. So it's some of the worst footage you'll ever see of destruction, but it is also bringing about some of the most heartwarming reminders of why this is a great and generous country. And our hearts continue to go out to the people in Kentucky and elsewhere affected by this. And if you want to think about the Red Cross or the Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, lots of great organizations trying to help people now in desperate need through no fault of their own. Something to think about as we approach Christmas and the holiday season. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show
2: continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: We are back. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, we welcome to the show for the first time Josh Rogan of The Washington Post, author of the book Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi and the Battle for the 21st Century. The subject, China. Here's part of that interview with The Washington Post's Josh Rogan. I want to ask you about all things China because we cover China a lot on this show. You really understand These issues on a granular level. Let's start with the Olympics coming up in just a few weeks time. The Biden administration has announced and a lot of our Western sort of Anglosphere allies have uh, jumped on board as well. A diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. What exactly does that mean? I know that the Chinese regime has reacted negatively with some bluster, uh, but it seems like that has maybe some bite on prestige, but certainly less Damage than you know, pulling out of the Olympics or really going after sponsors and that sort of thing. What's your read on the Olympics and how the Chinese government is viewing the partial diplomatic boycott?
5: Sure. Well, inside the Biden administri- administration, there was actually very little debate over what to do about the twenty twenty two Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, there was nobody really who argued that President Biden should show up in Beijing and stand next to Xi Jinping uh, and allow himself to be used in what essentially would be a photo op uh to whitewash the fact that these olympics are happening in a country uh, where a genocide is ongoing where xi jinping as we now know from uh more and more revealed uh internal documents uh, a genocide that xi jinping personally ordered and personally organized and personally oversees, and you know so this, th- there was never a sort of like a oh well maybe we should go maybe we shouldn't go uh at the same time uh, nobody inside the The Biden administration wanted to hurt the athletes. They didn't think... Uh, And by the way, Mitt Romney and uh, Nancy Pelosi and people like that agree with this view uh, that if the athletes want to go, they should go. And that the 1980 diplomatic boycott of the Soviet Union led by Jimmy Carter turned out to be more of a propaganda win for the Soviets in that view. It's not necessarily the view that I share. But anyway, that was the thinking. It's a half measure. It's a compromise. Uh, It's kind of a Goldilocks strategy, I like to call it. Not too hot, not too cold. They're trying to get it just right. It doesn't really do much for the Uyghurs, but it did give them a huge sort of shot in the arm. Uh, in terms of just moral support, uh, it's definitely, I mean, the, the reasons to criticize the boycott are pretty clear. You know, they make sense. they like, oh, well, it's not going to move the needle on the genocide. Sure, it's not going to move the needle on the genocide, but it's better than nothing. And, you know, I think we sort of make this mistake, uh, two mistakes when we talk about this. And because uh, the Olympics is really the last chance, the last time that I think the Chinese Communist Party will really give a crap one way or the other about what we say about it uh uh for a long time to come because you know to link it to the broader picture just for a second before i hand it over to you what we're experiencing is a downturn in not u.s china relations not a cold war between the united states and china but an increasing resistance to china's problematic behavior and actions as it rises in other words it's not about donald trump versus xi jinping it's not about washington versus beijing it's about the entire world coming to terms with the fact that the ccp uh, has changed
3: That full discussion with Josh Rogan of The Washington Post, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, along with the entire show, free of charge, every day, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. well, we have another real estate update from producer Christine. Her house is up for sale. They had an offer yesterday. They were expecting another one. Good news, bad news, maybe a change of heart? Oh my.
2: We'll get to that as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
3: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. If you're listening on the broadcast of the Home Stretch, I'll remind you, of course, that the entire program available on demand, the podcast guybensonshow.com. The song that you were just hearing is a bumper song on the live broadcast, Holly Jolly Christmas. My best friend Mary Catherine Ham just had a baby a few weeks ago, and her name is Holly. And their Christmas cart is so cute. It's a photo of Holly. And they're holding up a little piece of Holly. And she's wearing a red hat. So it looks like she almost is Holly. And then it's wishing everyone a Holly Jolly Christmas. Amazing. She was over at the house. We had Mary Catherine, her husband, over last night. Steve, we believe in Steve. Steve's very good at household tasks and chores sort of DIY projects, I am very bad at those things. Adam's good at them, but he needs help. So we had a few things that we needed to get done, and Steve is like, Johnny on the spot. Total Boy Scout, so good at it. And Mary Catherine and I supervise, let's put it that way, while having perhaps a glass of wine. And Holly, of course, was there with them, and it was very fun to see my dog, Roy, trying to figure out what Holly is. Because you could tell this is a living creature of some sort very small smaller even than him but not really a dog making some interesting sounds what is this he was very intrigued he was very curious and when she was sitting in her little car seat he would go up and put his nose almost directly onto her nose just staring at holly and he was never going to do anything his little tail was wagging very tentatively He's like, I like this situation, but I'm not sure what's happening. It was very, very cute. In any case, as we are back, we had some good news last evening for producer Christine. We mentioned how her daughter was pulled out of school. The whole grade was dismissed because of some COVID cases, including from the teacher, who I guess showed up to class sick and told all the students, I'm sick, behave well, and then had to go home because they tested positive for COVID. Well, Megan got tested, and tested negative. Even if she had it, we know that little kids are fine. But she tested negative. And so, Christine, what, you called up the school saying, my daughter has a negative test. You've got to take her. Like, we've got work. Figure it out. How did that go? No, that's
6: exactly what I did. Uh, Bobby emailed. I mean, Bobby had sent a couple of emails that weren't so pleasant in the past uh, 48 hours. And then once we got the PCR back, we uh, emailed it to them. I downloaded it on my phone along with the um, negative rapid test that we had done. And I said, Megan, put your uniform on. We're going to school. And she's like, uh, I don't, I don't think my teacher's there. I said, oh, the teacher better not be there. And right. she said, well, <laughs> what, what am I going to do if other people aren't there? I said, they'll figure it out. I said, this is their job. So reluctantly, she put on her little uniform. She brushed her hair. She looked at me and she said, literally, she said, here goes nothing. <laughs> and she got into the car. <laughs> <It is>
3: amazing. <laughs> she is wise beyond her oh, years.
6: the things that come out of her mouth. I mean, she is eight. I say eight going on 18. Honestly, she's more mature than I am.
3: She really, truly is. Oh, well, I mean, that's absolutely true. And in fact, we have some further evidence of that that you were also telling us earlier. So- where we left off yesterday in your real estate saga because you had this big scheme, this big plan. You're going to sell the house for a big profit, move into an apartment, and then wait for the market to cool off and then get a house down the road. This was your plan. I, I may or may not have on the air mentioned that there were some potential holes in the plan, but you were absolutely determined to do it, and you had a real estate agent come to your house without your – husband's knowledge and he heard about it on the show so he put an end to that but then you wore him down you convinced him the house is now on the market so you got an offer yesterday after a lot of foot traffic through the house in an open house saturday and then again sunday you got an offer Sound sounded like a pretty good offer but not good enough i guess from your perspective second offer was supposed to be forthcoming apparently that did not materialize so you've got this one offer at the moment more might be coming But you're telling me now that you are having second thoughts about the entire thing.
6: I feel like I'm a mental basket case right now. I'm not really sure what I did, what I put my family through. And my poor husband, I'm driving him nuts because every hour I think, all right, let's just pull it off the market. Forget it. This isn't going to work. And then, I, then he'll say to me, all right, are you sure? And I go, no, what are you talking about? He literally just wrote to me, you told me an hour ago you did not want to do this. And I said, I was just saying that. I didn't mean it. So he said, please put disclaimers of what I really mean and don't mean. But I feel by 10 years in, he should know that I'm just, you know, spiraling.
2: Uh-huh. This, is
6: this all ramble? I don't know. I don't even know if I should talk no. about this because I feel like crazy. I don't know what to do. Okay, I'm going to give you... Without saying numbers, I'm going to lay it all out there, and I want to know what to do. You're going to tell me what to do, and this time, I'm actually going to listen. I I want someone to tell me
3: what to do. Good luck with that, because I've already offered you some advice, and you seem to do the opposite thing. So maybe I should tell you the opposite of what I think you should do, and then you'll do what I actually think you should do.
6: No, that's just going to confuse me. Come on.
3: Okay, (laughs) so what's, what's the scenario?
6: Okay, ready? This is it. We put the house on the market. I built up in my head and had friends, not professionals, but friends say, oh, my gosh, this is going to go into such a bidding war. You're going to get such an amazing price. I can't believe it. Like da-da-da-da-da. So we did have a very, very successful um, open house. But unfortunately, the offers did not come in. So this bidding war that I built in my head of thinking hundreds of thousands of dollars over what we actually bought the house for is not really – working in my it's not working it it didn't happen so we did get a very very solid offer we countered back they pretty much said we could figure this out we could what you want we can get to you and it is the number that bobby and i had said from day one we would only we wouldn't take anything less than that so we hit our number which is a very very big number over what we bought our house for 10 years ago and they have offered to waive home inspection and appraisal, which apparently right, you so and this I spoke is this about. is the one
3: that we yes. talked about yesterday, yes. so so the big the big contingencies, at least a few of them are gone, yep, they already gave you just if I'm understanding this correctly, they already had offered above
6: your list price, yes,
3: and yes. then you countered even higher, Correct. and they said yes,
6: yes, and it wasn't a astronomical uh, amount that we countered we countered to what we had said we would sell for, you okay, know, like what we would uh. So what's the problem
3: here? You're just upset that there's not a big bidding Yes,
6: I thought it was going to go for even more. I had this in my mind. So like, do we take this and say, you know, because like my realtor just texted me and she's like, honey, you got to look at the market. You know, your house is a colonial in Northern Jersey. You know, the bedrooms are not huge. Your bathroom is not huge. And that is the major feedback she is getting is Mm -hmm. that for the price is it's not really that big.
3: Okay, so here's here's my general thought. And again, I'm not your real estate agent. I'm not you. But you are I'm not a therapist. Bobby. I am in my own way an unlicensed, uncompensated therapist. And I would say overall, this whole scheme of leaving a house, going to an apartment, hoping that the market cools off, then getting a bigger house down the road at some point, I have been skeptical of that entire plan from the beginning.
6: Why don't you and say I, so?
3: I did. When? And Wyatt Wyatt is nodding because he remembers it because I said it on the air. No, you never said that. Yes, I did. Oh, I absolutely did. The first time that you were gonna surprise your husband with a real estate agent, I was like, This sounds like another cookie scheme. We we're gonna do racehorses, you're gonna you have all sorts of get rich, quick schemes. This was the latest one. I was like, All right, you know. Then you actually move forward and you put it on the market. So it's just a gut check time. Here's the reality. If you believe that is the right plan for your family and you're happy moving to these apartments and you're happy waiting there for a while and you want to move forward and get a forever house a few years from now and just hope that the timing and the market and all of that works out, if that is your – still your position, like the the plan itself has not changed in terms of the way that you're approaching everything, the way you're hoping it will play out then to me it would be very foolish and ridiculous to reject an offer in hand that is an extremely attractive offer, that waives multiple contingencies, that has strong financing, that was already above your asking price, and then they came up even further to meet the number that you had in your head. You have literally achieved what you wanted to do. And to derail all of that and put the house back off the market – And abandon the entire plan just because you're kind of sad that there wasn't some, you know, feeding frenzy of sharks outbidding each other and the number going up and up and up. I think that would be short-sighted and greedy. And I think you should just stick with the plan. You've got what you wanted and pull the trigger. Or if that's not enough, then maybe you're telling yourself that the whole plan to begin with wasn't something you were actually sold on. But if you're sold on the plan, stay the course, accept the
6: offer. And do the thing. I actually think I'm going to follow through on this. I, I mean, I just, hear, just, no, actually your advice, just hearing you, Dan, what did I just say to you? He, he, he makes, you can go, Dan. He makes sense.
2: Yeah. It was very surprising to hear that. <laughs> so I would roll with that.
6: And Dan has been witnessing for the past hour, a spiral.
2: Yeah. I was like, uh, are you okay to talk about this? You seem a little stressed out right now. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, to me, it's look,
3: unless you are having a massive crisis of confidence, you don't want to move to the apartment. You don't want to get a bigger house and a forever house a few years down the line. Unless you are wanting to throw away the entire plan, then I think the answer is literally staring you in the face in the form of a full asking price plus offer with limited contingencies.
6: Yeah, no, you I... just I, say yes. I don't...
3: Take yes for an answer.
6: Yeah, I, I don't have this, like, I, I still want to go to the apartment. My family still wants to. I mean, Megan is looking at me yesterday.
3: Yes, yes, tell us about what she said. <laughs> this Megan, is how we got off on this. <laughs>
6: Megan is looking at me last night, and she goes, so what's the percentage here that we're moving? I go, excuse me? She goes, so I had this percentage that we were leaving at about, like, ninety ninety-five. She's like, it, based on the lack of offers that you're telling me we have... I'm probably going to bring it down to 85%. And I said, well, what is making you think that? And she said, well, you wanted a bidding war, right? I said, do you even know what a bidding war is? She literally told me. She goes, you wanted, she gave me a number. She goes, but you wanted somebody else to go higher and somebody else to go higher. (laughs) She's like, and then you wanted, you know, to finally say yes. She goes, but you didn't get that. So now I'm putting my percentage down to 85% that we're moving. She goes, and with that being said, she's like, I'd like a new bed. (laughs) For her bedroom.
3: Now she's got some demands here.
6: She's my daughter. Uh, She's amazing.
3: This is an eight-year-old. This is an eight-year-old, which is is just spectacular. So I think just to put a bow on this before Christmas, you had a number in mind. You had a game plan in mind. Yep. You have achieved all of it. Yes. And just because you're mad that it didn't go bigger and better than you imagined does not change what is right in front of you. And I think- you either abandon the entire plan and recalibrate your entire life plan moving forward on a house, or you accept this and take yes for an offer and move forward.
6: I think you're right. I mean, you're not the only one to have said this to me. My mentor, my radio mentor, another mentor. Sorry, God. There was one before you. I spoke to him last night, and he's like, it's a no-brainer. Take the money and run. <laughs> he's like, that's it. Yeah. We're done. So are you going to do that? I don't know. Yes. I think. Sure.
3: Yeah. So we're going to come and we'll update this tomorrow. She's like, the house is off the market. <laughs> All right? That's what's going to happen. And then I'm going to hire I've given my advice and-
6: You know what's coming next. And now next. she's going
3: to do the opposite. You know what's yeah. coming
6: next, right? House off the market and now I'm bringing contractors in to figure out what I can redo on the house.
3: Oh my gosh. For huge amounts of money and uh-huh. then you're not going to be get satisfied with that. <laughs> yeah, da- Christine, Does this- you need to- uh,
6: just don't make me Focus sound the too mind crazy here. here. Like, I this this does it sound like? Ask why. Yes. Why it's good at this? Why? Can you yes, put- he's
3: nodding. But Christine, that ship has sailed. That's the purpose of this whole segment. Almost every day, the ship has sailed. We're trying to help you make a good decision here because your craziness here could have significant impact on your family trajectory, as opposed to some of your like low level day to day craziness.
6: I'll keep
3: you updated. Yeah. All right. We will check back in on the Thursday edition tomorrow of the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great evening. We will talk to you then.
1: Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com.
2: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.